Uh, well, thank you all for coming um, today. Uh, uh, my talk is about uh, how we got from uh, the terror attacks on uh, New York and Washington and 9-11 to the Iraq War. Um, and uh, really, uh, more broadly, on why Americans supported the Iraq War in such large, large numbers. Um, the slide, um, the, the talk is titled Just Deserts in, in Iraq, and I don't mean just deserts. It's probably um, straining for a bad pun has probably confused more people than, than it's amused. But, um, but what I'm going to be talking about is just deserts in the, ter in the sense of uh, deservingness, that Iraq deserved, um, Saddam Hussein in particular, deserved to be overthrown. Um, that's how Americans felt after 9-11. That had a lot to do with, um, with why we're there today. Um, this is different from the main explanations for uh, American support for the, Gulf, uh, for the Iraq War. The first one, um, the, the most sort of conventional understanding is that Americans were scared. They were scared of the that the smoking gun might be the uh, come in the form of the mushroom cloud uh, to remind you of one of the more effective political metaphors in recent memory. Uh, threat inflation um, uh, by the Bush administration and uh, American perceptions of threat uh, from Iraq, Iraqi WMDs, Iraqi uh, links to al-Qaeda, uh, Iraqi antagonism towards the United States meant that Iraq was a threat that needed to be neutralized. Um, even though um, uh, many of these assumptions turned out to be, all these assumptions turned out to be false, um, uh, Americans were um, prone to accept them um, due to the sort of atmosphere of fear after 9-11 as well as the rally effect, the trust in President Bush that, um, that uh, 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 and his approval rate, is that uh, Americans actually didn't seem terribly frightened of uh, future terrorist attacks. Um, um, uh, less than a third worried about their personal insecurity after 9-11. Um, and they were even less t um, um, or, or worried about U.S. Uh, foreign relations. Uh, in addition, um, polls show that Americans did not think that toppling Iraq would reduce the likelihood of... Uh, a future terrorist attack. So this sort of puts some flies in the ointment of this um, threat uh, inflation, threat perception um, story. Uh, another explanation that's been offered has to do with partisanship, because there was a partisan gap in support for the war. The uh, Republicans from the beginning were about 10 uh, uh, percent more likely to favor war than Democrats, and this gap opened up uh, dramatically um, in late 2002 and, and 2003 to about uh, 30, 35 percent. The problem with this is it doesn't explain the surge in support for attacking Iraq that, um, that existed across the political spectrum immediately after the 9-11 attacks. Support surged uh, to about 75 percent um, of the American people in the uh, weeks and months afterward favored attacking Iraq. Um, Republicans and Democrats alike. The third explanation has to do with the failure of the marketplace of ideas, that the media failed to really check some of these assumptions about, about the Iraqi WMD and links to al-Qaeda and so forth, uh, and that um, uh, the media uh, was uh, so um, unskeptical 
in large part because they tend to index um, positions taken in Congress. Uh, the, the Democrats were quiescent. Um, uh, they were intimidated by um, Bush's pre uh, campaign for the war uh, that uh, uh, began um, several weeks before the um, midterm elections in 2002. And um, so, so congressional Democratic leaders, and most of them anyway, didn't con contest um, the Bush administration narrative. Um, the problem with this, or the, the, the um, inadequacy of this, is it doesn't really tell us why the Democratic leaders were so afraid of standing up to Bush. Uh, well, you can um, uh, go back to the first uh, theory, which is that, it, that um, they, they were responding to this atmosphere of fear and insecurity that Americans um, felt um, after 9-11 um, and uh, Bush's uh, approval ratings. But um, I think that there's another explanation um, as well. And there are some clues to this explanation that can be found in polls on emotional reactions after 9-11 that show that anger was a much more powerfully felt response to 9-11 nationwide than was fear. Uh, perhaps in New York, where I'm from, um, fear was, was the predominant response. But nationwide, it was, it was anger. Um, Two-thirds of Americans felt angry, whereas less than a third um, felt afraid for their personal uh, safety. Um, and this feeling of anger um, was, uh, in addition to public opinion polls, you can also see it in some of the, the, the uh, cultural uh, manifestations of, of, um, uh, th that followed. Um, Toby Keith scored a big hit. This was the, uh, a song in the biggest selling country album of 2002 and incidentally um, was George Bush's personal favorite album of 2002 um, in which he basically, uh, it was called Angry American, the title s says it all, but he basically makes a, um, uh, an, uh, is expressing the feeling of uh, not only anger but also a desire to lash out after 9-11. And, um, and uh, you know, uh, country music, I think, uh, for the, if there are any uh, American politics uh, uh, experts in the room, um, might take note. I think country and Western music is, a, is an infallible barometer of the American psyche. <laughs> um, actually, uh, it has uh, 42 million listeners to country and Western stations, more than any other particular kind, even adult-oriented, uh, uh, what do they call it? Uh, adult-oriented rock or something. Um, uh, they don't call it country for nothing. Uh, there's also um, um, uh, studies that show, I think more uh, compellingly even than this, that um, for, for my thesis is that there were uh, strong correlations between, there's just a couple studies showing the strong correlations between anger over 9-11 and support for attacking Iraq, um, even though these things in many people's minds, are totally unrelated. Um, finally, as Rick mentioned, um, there's another clue in uh, um, some work that I've done on this I.O. article from 2006 showing that there is uh, uh, correlations between death penalty support, um, which uh, I argue is a, um, a kind of a, a measure or reflection of people's retributive values, the extent to which they believe in an eye for an eye, um, and their support for the Iraq war controlling for ideology, demographics, um, even um, perceived threat from Iraq. Uh, now, 
I think uh, the most insightful uh, source for understanding the path from 9-11 to Iraq uh, is a, uh, another country and western song. I don't know if there are any country and western fans in the audience. Uh, by Daryl Worley. I don't know if you would have heard this. Um, and this came a little bit after um, Toby Keith's. It's called uh, Have You Forgotten? And it's such a sophisticated articulation of how Americans felt uh, that I'm going to actually play it for you. I think it's it probably the three minutes that it takes is a short song. It will um, probably uh, convince you more than um, than I'll be able to do in the same amount of time. So let me see if I can if I can uh, if I can get this to work here.
Rumsfeld, um, who uh, at a performance at the Pentagon in April 2003 was pumping his fists and actually wiping tears from his eyes um, during the performance. Basically, what I'm going to do today is try to defend the Daryl Worley theory of why we uh, uh, are in Iraq. And I'm going to try to um, better ground his explanation, drawing on recent developments in uh, uh, research on the psychology of anger, punitiveness, and intergroup emotion. Um, so much of this is hinted at uh, in the song, Have You Forgotten, that I wouldn't be surprised if Daryl Worley maybe was an undergraduate here in the psych department. I don't know. But um, I'm also going to show that uh, Worley uh, actually provides an accurate portrait of how Americans were thinking uh, at the time. Uh, there are basically four reasons why um, uh, we would expect to see a correlation between anger over 9-11 and support for attacking Iraq. And the first and most obvious one is that a lot of Americans believe that Saddam had something to do with 9-11. Uh, some polls suggest that um, up to 70 to 80 percent um, thought that Saddam, uh, thought it somewhat or very likely uh, that Saddam was personally involved in the attack. So obviously anyone who thought that Saddam was, was uh, uh, involved and wanted revenge against the attackers would also want revenge against Saddam. Uh, uh, research in, on crime and punishment thinking has shown that uh, retribution is a central motive for the desire for punishment. Most of this research has been on crime and punishment attitudes. Um, uh, oops, where's my... Um, um, not confused here. Yeah, most of the, um, the research has been on crime and punishment attitudes showing that um, that uh, perceptions of the seriousness of offense uh, causes anger, and the, um, which in turn causes uh, the severity of the punishment that people approve. And that, in other words, anger mediates this, uh, uh, this uh, relationship between perceived wrongdoing and punitiveness. Um, um, the um, centrality of anger and desires for retribution is evident um, and uh, among other things, um, attitudes on the death penalty. Um, uh, you ask people why they support the death penalty um, or even why they oppose it. A majority give moralistic reasons rather than any kind of utilitarian arguments about deterrence or, or uh, stopping killers from killing again. Um, they, don't, they don't say we want revenge or we want retribution against killers because there's a social taboo on uh, revenge and retribution. But... Uh, they use the um, the uh, formulations, basically amounting to, to, 
to the same thing of an eye for an eye, a life for a life, fits the crime, they deserve it. That's the just deserts I mentioned earlier, biblical reasons, or it serves, um, serves justice. Um, now, if you don't want to take people's word for it, uh, there's a lot of experimental psychological research, psychology research. Um, John Darley, Kevin Carlsmith, um, and others um, recently that, ha- that manipulates vignettes of crime and punishment attitudes and the possible consequences of different punishments. And they've, um, they um, are able to manipulate factors that are relevant for retribution as well as for um, incapacitation uh, purposes of punishment and deterrence purposes of punishment. You know, for example, they'll have a scenario in which um, the punishment will be widely publicized or it won't be widely publicized, and that has ramifications for deterrence, but not for uh, retribution. And they found that that retribution is a much powerful, more powerful motive than these utilitarian um, these utilitarian um, arguments. So. Um, what they've really uncovered is kind of a dirty little secret in Western civilization, or at least in American culture, which is that retribution is alive and well, despite the efforts of uh, Jesus, the Stoics, and, uh, and utilitarians, probably above all, to stigmatize retribution as a reason for punishment. And um, you all can, can appreciate this if you think about how many moviegoers have flocked to movies like Death Wish, Dirty Harry, Mad Max, anything that Mel Gibson is in, um, uh, Gladiator, uh, V for Vendetta, uh, just to see Avengers dole out poetic justice to evil bad guys. Uh, so Hollywood, I think, is uh, understands this dirty little sec- this dirty secret very well. Um, uh, let me see. Um, there are a couple other things to to um, to observe about uh, about re- retribution. One is that it's not just a momentary feeling that people have when they learn about a wrongdoing, that, that this feeling can be revived when they're reminded of wrongdoing, uh, uh, and also uh, rumination, thinking about uh, the episode, thinking about the wrongdoing can sustain desires for retribution over long periods of time. Um, now, um, oh yeah, one last, uh, um, oh, and that, that, that uh, those findings about rumination and reminders really I think illustri- uh, help explain nicely um, Daryl Worley's um, uh, argument that, well, we should, uh, you know, if it was up to me, I'd, 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 I'd watch these, um, uh, uh, the footage of the towers falling every day. Um, and and that he actually wants to feel that feeling of retribution. Um, uh, there's a recent study done by uh, neurological scientists that found that um, that uh, the old uh, adage that revenge is sweet actually has a basis in brain activity that the anticipation of doling out revenge actually lights up areas in the brain and the striatum that are associated with pleasure. So, um, uh, so uh, uh, desires for revenge create this sort of powerful mix of uh, sort of uncomfortable anger that you want to resolve through punishment um, combined with the pleasant expectation of getting the bad guys. Um, now, um, not everyone is equally retributive. Uh, retributiveness varies, and varies not only by the stimuli that people um, uh, face in terms of their impressions of wrongdoing, but also by individual differences. Um, 
Uh, intergroup emotion theory has highlighted the importance of identification with the victims. People have social identifications with different groups and the extent to which you see a similarity between yourself um, with uh, the victims, um, you will feel more outrage um, over uh, harm done to those victims. Um, so um, this helps to explain why patriotism is such a powerful predictor of the degree of anger felt over, uh, over an attack on the United States. Um, secondly, there is variation, although there's much less known about this, there's variation in um, eye for an eye instincts or values, um, but there clearly uh, is some variation um, uh, sort of illustrated in that slide I had up earlier uh, showing the different um, attitudes people have about the death penalty, uh, some really believing in an eye for an eye and others having more sort of forgiving values or, um, or, uh, or so on. Now, um, this first mechanism, um, uh, beliefs that Saddam was involved in 9-11, um, uh, uh, sort of begs the question, why do people believe Saddam was involved in 9-11? And one possibility is that prior, prior information about Saddam, uh, uh, the experience of the Gulf War and his resistance to, to sanctions and um, his truculence, etc., has... Uh, basically led people to ha form a kind of enemy image, uh, to use uh, uh, one of uh, Rick's uh, favorite concepts um, of Saddam, and that this led them to, after 9-11, assume that Saddam had something to do with this terrible thing that happened to the United States. In other words, a kind of a cool appraisal of Saddam's guilt gener generated these hot processes of anger and desires for revenge. Um, but... Um, uh, but, but there are other possibilities as well. In fact, something hotter than a cool appraisal is suggested by the great lines in Daryl Worley's song. Some say this country's just out looking for a fight after 9-11. Man, I'd have to say that's right. Um, in fact, a run, in the run-up to the war, a reporter asked um, a DJ who, uh, for a country station who was playing Worley's song every hour, um, you know, why are you playing this song so, so often? There's no known uh, evidence that there's a link between Osama bin Laden and the 9-11 attacks and uh, Saddam Hussein. And the DJ's reply was, the audience is so wrapped up in the emotion of what it's about, I don't think they're nitpicking at this point. <laughs> Everybody's viewing all the bad guys in a big bucket. Uh, so what I, what I suspect is that Worley must have keeping abreast of a growing body of research on the interaction between specific emotions and cognition that's been called the appraisal tendency framework. And the literature, this literature suggests three consequences of anger that might have heightened support for war through uh, biased cognition. Um, uh, one is indiscriminate blaming. In other words, um, um, uh, uh, a desire to avenge 9-11 led people to be, an, an anger, led people to be more likely to blame Saddam for, um, for some involvement in 9-11, as well as maybe pursuing weapons of mass destruction, being a brutal dictator, any number of offenses, and therefore wanting to give him his just desserts. Um, and some of the uh, studies um, uh, in, in interpersonal uh, relationship, uh, relationships or interactions, this is called triggered displaced aggression. The idea is your boss is mean to you, choose you out at work, you're unable to get back at the boss because you'll lose your job, you're steaming, you come home, and your dog jumps up on you and 
even though and any other day if your dog dog jumped up at you you would you would embrace your dog you you uh, kick him and say bad dog uh, in other words being angry about um, about uh, uh, something an unjustified offense makes you more aggressive um, there's a study that was done actually right here at OSU helps to explain this effect and um, it's actually um, a study that was done not on um, on uh, uh, direct ag- aggression, but on, um, on on punitiveness, and they showed a film, like I did here, to to the subjects of uh, an adult beating up a helpless teenager from the movie My Bodyguard, and then um, afterwards they told half of the group um, that that uh, bully had been punished, and the other half they told them that the bully had gotten away scot free, and then they gave them a series of crime and punishment vignettes and ask them to, um, to judge the, the guilt of a perpetrator and to assign a punishment. And the ones who had been told that the, that the bully had gotten away scot-free assigned significantly greater blame to the perpetrator. They're more guilty. They had a more malevolent intent uh, and, they, and uh, also assigned uh, uh, more severe punishments to the perpetrator than those um, who had seen the same stimuli but thought that the bully had been punished. So this th- has been called the carryover effect, the carryover of incidental anger onto blaming and, um, and punitiveness. So obviously what I'm sort of getting at here is this idea that after 9-11, that Osama bin Laden and these terrorists attacked us and we couldn't really get back at them. Osama bin Laden actually got away and was in hiding and thumbing his nose at us from the mountains somewhere in uh, Pakistan, uh, Afghan border. And uh, we were as um, uh, uh, still outraged after, uh, about 9-11, uh, were more likely to blame other leaders uh, that were annoying and irritating, but maybe didn't quite deserve, under normal circumstances, we wouldn't have felt um, that they were as outrageous or deserving punishment. A second, uh, a second possible mechanism is prejudice. Anger has been shown to increase uh, stereotypical thinking and prejudice. Um, and, um, and there are also some studies that show that this phenomenon occurred after 9-11. People who were angry about 9-11 had greater antipathy towards Arabs in general, not just Arabs in Saudi Arabia where these uh, hijackers came from, but um, Arabs in uh, any Arab country, any Muslim country, and in fact Arabs right here at home. Um, so... Uh, so, so uh, the logical implication of this, although this happened to elude Daryl Worley in his song, is that um, although he's probably thinking of it, it just was uh, couldn't bring himself to put it in uh, in the in the song. That um, uh, we were just angry at uh, Americans were just angry at uh, uh, Arabs because of the superficial similarity um, of uh, ethnic identity between. Um, between those who were the hijackers and those um, and those living in other Arab countries, and this made us uh, more likely to want to strike back at, at uh, Arab countries. Um, a final um, final hypothesis linking anger over 9/11 to support for the war is that uh, it comes from the uh, um, uh, well-established finding that anger affects um, risk appraisals. Um, in fact, fear affects risk appraisals in the opposite direction, um, makes people more risk-averse. Anger makes people more risk-acceptant risk and also to diminish their, their forecasts of the risks of different things. You can make somebody angry um, uh, over one thing and they will be um, 
less likely to think they're going to catch the flu that year, for example. Over a whole range of different things, they'll be more optimistic and overconfident. And, um, and there's evidence uh, that this occurred after 9-11 as well, that people who were, who were angry over the attacks were also less likely to think they were going to catch the flu than people who were afraid um, of terrorism um, and people um, um, who were neutral. Now, uh, it's kind of hard to untangle these, these four hypotheses. Um, and uh, so I have a more modest goal here, which is to basically demonstrate that revenge, desires for revenge, did have a big impact on support for the war. Um, and also to show that, um, that the effect was not epiphenomenal to um, perceptions of threat. In other words, it wasn't perceptions of threat that was causing anger and support for the war. Um, or another alternative explanation is, as I mentioned earlier, is the um, um, partisanship or elite leadership of public opinion. Maybe um, uh, because uh, conservatives' trust in Bush um, made them both more angry about 9-11 because he was angry about 9-11 and support the war because he supported war. Um, so I want to control or rule out these other explanations. Um, and I also want to explore uh, uh, the retributive mechanism by looking at some of the antecedents of anger to see whether, as we would expect, um, people who are more retributive in their values had greater anger and desire for revenge and through that support for war, as well as people who were patriotic and identified with the, with the victims of the attacks uh, were also um, angrier and support war. So I have two studies to discuss if I have time, but I probably won't. Maybe in the Q&A I can discuss a second one. Um, the first one analyzes data on emotional reactions to 9-11 collected um, in um, late September of 2001 and in January of 2002 by my colleague Linda Skitka. should have mentioned at the beginning that this is a collaborative paper and it would not be possible without this fantastic data set that, um, that uh, Linda who's a social psychologist at the University of Illinois in Chicago, collected. Um, uh, the, um, the data, in addition to measuring emotional reactions, also has a question on uh, whether people or the degree of support or opposition to expanding the war on terror to Iraq and other nations suspected of harboring terrorists. Uh, it's a categorical measure, um, and so many people were, there are so few that, that were totally opposed to this idea that it's really only a, effectively a three-level categorical measure. Those who are very much moder um, uh, uh, very much much and moderately uh, supported this idea. Um, I measured revenge, the desire for revenge against uh, the 9/11 terrorists, um, with uh, four items. One asking people how they felt right now about the events of 9/11. Did they feel uh, how strongly did they feel a desire to fight back? And the second three items um, asked if they felt a desire to hurt those responsible for the attack, a compelling need for vengeance, and that the people who did this were evil to the core. Um, these, um, these items also correlated very highly with items in the study on anger and hatred and outrage, but they clung together a little bit more tightly um, in an in a, um, uh, exploratory factor analysis, and they correlated more strongly with support for the war. So I, I uh, create a separate measure for revenge. Um, incidentally, 
Um, even though there is this taboo on vengeance in our sort of Christian utilitarian culture, 40% of the respondents said that they, that they felt um, very much or much um, a desire for revenge, compelling need for vengeance after 9-11. And 51% felt um, a desire to hurt those responsible for the attacks. This is the same thing. I think the difference there in the overall mean is a reflection of the taboo against vengeance as being an illegitimate feeling. Um, but even despite that, um, uh, people reported this strongly. And this is a measure from January 2002, four months after the attacks. People are still feeling this. Um, 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 uh, I measured uh, prejudice against Arabs with a couple items asking how people's opinions had changed since 9-11 about Palestinians and about people living in Islamic and Middle Eastern countries. Um, this is also a categorical, even after combining these two items, um, because it's a categorical variable because so few people felt better about Palestinians and people living in Islamic Middle Eastern countries. In fact, almost virtually no one felt better. And um, also, no one really owned up to, or very few owned up to feeling very, very much worse about these groups. So we ended up with a five-level categorical variable, even after combining these items. Um, to measure retributiveness, I use right-wing authoritarianism. Um, and the, uh, the, it's a commonly used construct. It's controversial. But I think it does reflect value, values of moral desires to punish uh, transgressors of norms. And, um, and uh, um, if I was redoing the study, I would have picked something that measured retributiveness more directly. Uh, retributiveness, uh, RWA also taps uh, submission to authority, and it uh, taps... Um, uh, conventionalism or uh, sort of social conservatism. Um, but these are all, in all the studies, they're very tightly correlated uh, constructs. And so I think it's, um, especially if I control for conservatism, it's a good measure of retributiveness. Um, and you can see some of the items convey this idea of moral punishment by talking about uh, destroying radical new ways and sinfulness, um, the importance of getting rid of rotten apples, smashing perversions, and uh, silencing troublemakers. Um, uh, finally, I measured patriotism with a single item on the extent to which people felt a surge of patriotism following the attacks. Um, I measured threat, which is, again, going to be a control variable, with uh, a single item on how worried are you about future terrorist attacks. Um, and I measured polit political af affinities and loyalties with two items, one asking how um, people's feelings had changed about political leaders since 9-11 to try to capture this rally around the flag effect uh, uh, and, um, and a uh, standard item on ideology. I didn't have a partisanship um, uh, measure. So what I did with this data is I estimated a path model. And path models are useful for um, testing uh, hypotheses about mediation. And I have a lot of mediational, in other words, um, the effect of the, the, the causal processes by which these different attitudes affect each other. And you can, um, um, uh, I, I've got a couple of mediational hypotheses that I mentioned earlier. One is that revenge heightened um, uh, an anger, uh, or retributive anger heightened anti-Arab antipathy, and through that helped increase the likelihood of war, as well as some of those other causal mechanisms, which I can't test directly. Um, and also the 
indirect effects of retributiveness and patriotism on increasing um, revenge. If those things caused uh, support for war by increasing the desires for revenge against the 9-11 terrorists, then that gives me greater confidence in my sort of uh, cause, uh, the the Daryl Worley theory of, uh, of American support for the Iraq war. Now, you, I apologize for this slide because there's a lot of variables that I just mentioned. They're all in one model, and uh, some of these numbers are going to be hard to read, so get out your binoculars. But uh, basically, um, I estimated this, um, for those of you who, who um, ha, uh, do this kind of modeling, using um, software called M+, um, path modeling, uh, which is a fairly new kind of software developed primarily for um, doing this kind of modeling with categorical dependent variables, um, which uh, standard um, path models are, are not really well equipped. Uh, um, software is not really well equipped to do. Um, and, uh, 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 and so what these, these coefficients are, it's a little bit confusing, but the, there are some categorical variables. The coefficients to the categorical variables, which are um, pro-war... Um, anti-Arab um, threat and patriotism and rally, all of those are probit, standardized probit coefficients. And the others are linear regression coefficients, standardized linear regression coefficients. And the, the genius of this program, I hope it works. I don't really un- fully understand the theory behind it. But the genius of this program is that is that not just that it can estimate these causal paths, but it can, it can give a sense of the overall fit of the model, even though you have these different kinds of, of um, link functions between, between uh, variables. And, um, and, and the overall fit statistics fit very well, um, uh, meet the conventional thresholds um, for uh, this sort of model. Um, it's called... Um, Weighted least squares, means, and various variance adjusted estimation. Um, so that doesn't mean that this is the only possible model that you could create that would pass, that, that would fit the data, but, um, but that it's at least consistent with the data. And just to point out some of the interesting results here, revenge has a, has a, a sizable <coughs> direct effect on support for war. So does uh, antithesis towards, um, towards Arabs. Um, that re- um, revenge has an, ind- an additional indirect effect by heightening antipathy, antipathy towards, uh, towards Arabs, um, that uh, revenge is also boosted considerably by patriotism. This is a very large coefficient there of 0.50 from patriotism and 0.25 from right-wing authoritarianism. And so that um, uh, patriotism, in fact, doesn't really have a direct effect on support for war except as mediated by um, increased desires for revenge against the terrorists and also this other path here, which is um, through increased um, approval of American political leaders. Uh, Now, I've removed insignificant paths from the diagram that were also in the original model that I estimated. And what that would imply is that there is no significant unmediated relationship between these variables that don't have arrows between them, Um, such as, for example, the perceived threat from future terrorist attacks and support for the Iraq war. 
And so not only does threat not account for the relationship between revenge and support for the war, but it doesn't even predict support for the war at all after controlling for revenge and uh, prejudice against and increased hostility towards Arabs. Um, also that there is no relationship between rally, which is the uh, increased uh, approval of American political uh, leaders and revenge. That rally did increase support for the war, but it didn't increase desires for revenge. So it's not just an artifact. Um, and also the same is true for ideology, um, that this increased revenge is not an artifact of conservative or, uh, or, or liberal or, um, or the degree to which people are just uh, pulling behind Bush and, and thinking the way he thinks. Um, because he thinks that way. They might think the way he thinks because they're, they listen to country music, however. Uh, now, um, as I said, that you can test these models with alternative specifications. And one interesting specification, alternative hypothesis, is that, um, is that hostility towards Arabs increased desire for revenge against the terrorists rather than vice versa. It seems a little implausible to me that people would want more revenge against the terrorists because they um, were angrier at Arabs, but maybe this anti-Arab measure picks up some pre-attack prejudice against Arabs that might have made people more judgmental against the people that attacked us and so on. And so what I did is I uh, estimated another model with the arrow pointing the other way between from anti-Arab to revenge. And um, I won't bore you with the statistics, but, it, um, but three out of the five um, indicators of overall fit did not meet the acceptable thresholds, um, uh, showing that that, that different uh, specification didn't really fit the data. Another possibility is that um, you notice that, um, I haven't mentioned this yet, that, that a desire for revenge, and it's kind of curious, desire for revenge against a terrorist increased the perceived threat of future terrorist attacks. And this seems confusing. And maybe um, maybe threat, actually, um, of future terrorist attacks might have somehow increased desires for revenge against uh, and striking back against the terrorists. And here, there is some theoretical reason for imagining um, that the causal arrow worked, uh, goes in the other direction. And that is the research in, um, in uh, intergroup emotion theory showing that provocation heightens and, um, and, and some senses threat heightens anger and desires for confrontation um, when the group feels that, when members of the group feel that their group is strong. Um, it heightens uh, desires for flight and fear when members of the group feel that their group is weak. But we are Americans, we naturally think our group is strong. Um, possibly threat then heightened anger and desires for revenge rather than um, wanting to flee. So this seemed a, a kind of a serious alternative hypothesis and although it wouldn't account, switching the arrow wouldn't account for the relationship between revenge and support for war, at least it would give greater credence to this idea that this whole process was driven to some ex uh, to, in large measure by threat perception and fear. <coughs> So what I did is, again, like in the other case, I reversed the arrow, and the fit statistics were pretty much the same. Um, so um, I wasn't able to reject that alternative specification that way. So what I did was I specified some simpler models with additional what are called instrumental variables. 
And instrumental variables are exogenous, are uh, sort of antecedent causes of threat and desires for revenge that, w uh, for theoretical reasons, we could expect them to kind of uniquely, uh, uniquely predict uh, uh, threat and uniquely predict revenge. And therefore, we could look at the, um, um, the correlations among all these variables and see whether, um, whether um, we could... Uh, differentiate the different specifications. So the, the um, instrumental variables I used were anger and fear. And these were measured in September of 901, four months earlier. Um, and uh, the uh, extent to which anger is measured with the extent to which uh, people felt hatred and outrage. Fear is the extent to which people felt frightened and vulnerable. And these scale well together. And my uh, assumption is that... Um, assumption is that uh, fear uh, felt after 9-11 would increase uh, feelings of threat about future terror attacks, and anger felt after 9-11 would be a much stronger predictor of revenge, desires for revenge, but not of perceptions of threat. Um, and, um, and, and as you can see, the relationships are very strong between anger felt four month, months earlier and revenge and fear. Um, um, four months earlier, predicting threat. Um, but the overall FIT statistics uh, do not, um, do not uh, um, pass. Four out of the five of them fail to meet the, the cutoffs. Um, basically, the way this works is, um, uh, is uh, anger should have caused uh, re uh, that any relationship between under this model, between fear and revenge should have been mediated by threat under this specification, right? If fear causes threat but not revenge and anger causes revenge but not threat. So um, the, 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 uh, the poor fit statistics are saying um, that's not true, that threat really didn't mediate um, all, uh, all, the effect, all the relationship between fear and revenge. So... Um, the, um, the, uh, the other specification, uh, which uses the, the same causal relationship that I had in that earlier path model, of revenge causing threat fit much better. Uh, all these paths with flying colors. What this means is that the relationship, or what this model is telling us, is that what the relationship between anger and threat is fully mediated by revenge. Uh, and so that fits the data very well. Um, I know I'm, I want to leave some time for questions. Um, so um, what are the substantive effects? I know those coefficients are meaningless or hard to understand. So um, this slide shows um, the effect of the different variables that had direct effects on support for war. And the blue line is the one you want to look at. Um, that's, this is the increased, the estimated increased probability of strong support for war against Iraq uh, and other states suspected of harboring terrorists from a, um, uh, a big shift in rally, a big shift in, in rally and ideology combined, a big shift in right-wing authoritarianism. Um, uh, when I say big shift, I mean a, from the 10th percentile of the population, the value of uh, the lowest 10th percentile and the highest not, uh, and the 90th percentile. Um, a shift in feelings of revenge, 
uh, a shift in feelings of antipathy towards Arabs, and a shift in combined revenge and uh, antipathy, antipathy towards, I'm having problems with that one today, towards Arabs. And we can see that revenge, the people who felt really strongly um, uh, desire to, for revenge against the terrorists were uh, almost um, 40% more likely to strongly desire war against Iraq than those who uh, hardly felt that at all. Uh, and uh, people who felt much worse about Arabs were about 20% than those who really felt no change about, about Arabs. Uh, and if you put those together, um, it's over a 50% uh, swing in the, the likelihood of people uh, expressing strong support for the war against Iraq. Um, so these are, these are substantively strong effects. Let me just um, end with this uh, uh, slide here. Um, I think it's likely that anger dissipated over time. In fact, the data that I have shows that anger did dissipate, did uh, reduce, did, um, did shrink over the four-month period, although uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's susceptible to being revived uh, through um, um, you know, elite communication and reminders of this, anniversaries of 9-11 and so on. I think it's not a coincidence that the Bush administration started its campaign for the war against Iraq about um, two weeks before the first anniversary of 9-11. Um, but even still, it's possible that then over the, unlikely oh, that over the next couple of years that that this desire for revenge uh, uh, tapered off. Um, so it does raise the possibility that, you know, the data that I've been looking at is from January of 2002, that by um, late 2002 and early 2003, that the basis of support for the war may have shifted more towards a concern about the Iraqi threat, especially after the big campaign that the Bush administration put out um, to trying to persuade the Americans of Iraqi WMD and the smoking gun, mushroom cloud, et cetera. Um, so we have some data from March 2003 that asks people about uh, whether they felt um, going to war would satisfy um, a desire to hurt those responsible for 9-11. And this is uh, as the U.S. is about to go to war. And, um, and also whether it would satisfy a need for revenge and would satisfy moral outrage about 9-11. And more than 50% of Americans said that going to war would at least moderately satisfy those, uh, those, those feelings. Um, so um, let me, I'm going to skip some more, I have some more analysis of this. But let me just, um, I do want to get your questions. So let me just say that um, in conclusion that uh, revenge matters. And it matters in part by spilling over into targets that are superficially similar to the people that, that um, the, the original wrongdoers. Um, and, uh, and I think this helps to explain uh, the degree of threat that Americans perceived after 9-11. Uh, and also, revenge helps to explain the failure of the marketplace of ideas that people were prone to believe terrible things about Iraq because they were angry um, uh, about 9-11. Um, and, that, um, and that congressmen, Democrats in particular, were afraid to go on record opposing the war and criticizing the war in October of 2002 when that resolution came down. People like Hillary Clinton and so on um, said that, that uh, for my friend over here um, who likes Barack Obama, um, 
because not because Americans were so afraid, um, but because, uh, but at least because they really liked this idea of lashing out at other countries that they felt um, were against us. And um, uh, and I think this there are broader implications here um, uh, for uh, sort of prevailing theories of public opinion that really emphasize uh, kind of rational response to threat as the main motor for support for military action, um, and also the elite leadership, um, that, that there are some sort of uh, deeper things and powerful things going on that aren't, that, that, that can be shaped by the international environment, can be shaped by elite communication. For all, Bush was not only talking about the Iraqi threat, he was talking about how evil Saddam Hussein was, how evil the terrorists that attacked us were. But, um, but in a way, he was also capitalizing on this automatic, uh, instinctive reaction that Americans had um, uh, to the 9-11 attacks. Um, uh, it also suggests that there's a tendency for publics to overreact to evil tyrants and to terrorist attacks. And um, um, this is kind of worrisome um, for the future because we may well face future terror attacks again. And in fact, um, uh, a lot of experts think that Osama bin Laden attacked us, part of it, that his strategy was to get us to intervene in a place where we would get stuck in a quagmire and alienate moderate Muslim and Arab opinion and make them more radical, gain more adherence to his cause, undermine the kinds of monarchs and uh, people uh, that he opposes that are friendly to the United States. Uh, and, um, and so uh, this kind of political jiu-jitsu strategy is likely to work against people like us. If we get mad and we don't really calculate that our, um, that our responses are going to help our security. Now, what are the practical lessons for this? It's obviously not easy to change culture, the retributiveness that I mentioned, or our moral, uh, emotional and moral psychology. But there certainly are ways to dampen indiscriminate retributive urges. One is to keep the focus on the people who did the wrongdoing. Um, and uh, you can uh, um, uh, get your retributive yayas out by punishing them. Um, that... Um, in addition, self-awareness of biases does help uh, in, in correction so that political leaders who advised us to not um, succumb to anger and, and indiscriminate vengeance might help people think uh, that, that uh, might help people avoid falling into that trap. And also, possibility of offering alternative emotional outlets like encouraging people to help to volunteer to help the victims or things like that. And finally, probably most important, is the importance of finding leaders who are less likely to harp on themes of good versus evil, the need for justice, and engage in gratuitous demonization of other states, and who perhaps may even think that way themselves. So with that, I will end, and I really look forward to your questions. Um, this paper is still in process. I would have uh, disseminated it. Um, so I really look forward to your feedback. Thanks. Okay, I don't know anybody's name, but Andrew. Except, except Andrew introduced himself to me earlier. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't uh, use numbers in my work, so I don't have a question that will speak to any of that. Um, I do have a couple broader questions. Um, the, the model seems to presuppose that you're looking at anger directed at those directly responsible. 
mm-hmm. we're seen as being directly responsible for the attack. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, you know, some of us kind of were angry at American, uh, at the, the idea, the perception that, that uh, American foreign policy was, you know, over the last 20, 30 years was somehow indirectly responsible for this. <coughs> Well, um, most Americans were angry at the attackers. And uh, to the extent to which they were not angry, it was probably because they felt, exactly as you articulated, that there were some extenuating circumstances here, or at least some kind of understanding that the people that attacked us didn't attack us because they're evil or they hate us because of who we are, but they attacked us because they believe that we have injured them and that we are oppressing them, and we are the world's bully. Um, and um, you believe that, I believe that, um, I mean, I also think they were evil too, but not as like supremely evil as, as, um, as Daryl Worley and George Bush um, would have us believe. And, um, uh, and, and so I think that that's captured a little bit in that, that measure that I have of in fact, there's an item in there, and how, do you believe that the terrorists are evil to the core? To what extent do you believe the terrorists are evil to the core? And those who would have a more situational explanation for their attack on us um, would be less vengeful than those who would have a dispositional explanation in the words of social, in the sort of terminology of social psychology. And anger tends to make people make more dispositional attributions that sort of underlies this blaming effect this in, and this indiscriminate blaming effect that I mentioned earlier. If you're angry about an attack, um, it's called emotion, it's called um, affect is information. You're angry about the attack, so um, you think you're in an environment in which angering things are likely to occur, such as people doing things on purpose to hurt you uh, in a mean way, not doing things by accident or not getting you back, because that doesn't make you as angry. So... So, um, you know, so I think that this isn't inconsistent with what you're saying, and it can sort of help explain what you're saying, and that I've been focusing on re- revenge um, and that end of this polar scale of vengefulness, but there's also the other end of the polar scale is not feeling so vengeful, right? A more um, understanding or indifferent. And, um, and, 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 uh, and, and so I think that accommodates that spectrum, even though most Americans were up in the more in the higher the higher um, spectrum. I think I mean we could talk about this after, but I, I think uh, kind of resisting what, what you're suggesting, I, I'm, I'm thinking that, uh, that rather than say liberals are, always oh, I should say liberals really hate this, and the reason is uh, is that is that they think that human nature is basically good, and uh, and that how can this be? that we could be so vengeful and that it must be the Bush administration manipulating us and making us scared because being striking out if you're scared is kind of a more understandable um, liberal response than striking out because you're angry and want revenge. Yes, Marilyn. Um, I, 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 despite <laughs> being a liberal, I do... <laughs> 
Well, social psychologists, social psychologists are liberals who've been mugged by reality. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and, and I also It's a good. It's a good question. Yeah. Unless it, it was more. I mean, that's where I start bringing in the Right. It's a good. It's a good question. And remember that this study, the data is from January two thousand two, which is just you know the war is still um, um, is still going on. So maybe a few months later, after the top. You know, let's see, I think the Taliban was pretty much knocked over by December, right? November. Um, well, you know, well, you know, I, the fact that Osama bin Laden and a lot of the other ringleaders got away, I think that that really aggravated people. And in fact, a majority of Americans said that the war in Afghanistan would be a failure if we didn't get Osama bin Laden. Um, that number decreased over time as people <coughs> reconciled to them, themselves to the reality that we weren't going to get him. But um, um, but I think that I think that that did have an effect, and that um, you know um, um, the other thing is that the feeling was just so strong that maybe one country wasn't enough, and um, uh, you know I think that you have to go back to Pearl Harbor to find a precedent like this. Maybe t to a lesser extent the the um, kidnapping of the Americans in the in Tehran and the embassy in 1979, but I think you really have to go back to Pearl Harbor to find a, a de the degree of outrage. And and if you look back at you know uh, John, um, John Mueller, I don't think he's I didn't see him here today, but you know and um, uh, uh, in his book and other works, um, you know War Without Mercy on um, feelings uh, in American reaction to Pearl Harbor, um, there was just an outpouring of hatred of the Japanese that was not matched by hatred of the Germans um, after Pearl Harbor. And it was um, even after, um, you know, four years of destruction and pounding and bombing of the Japanese, um, Americans still said, a significant number of Americans still said, I wish we had had a chance to, bomb, to, to drop more nuclear bombs on Japan before they had surrendered. Um, so, you know, I, I just think it's a, it's a powerful feeling, and maybe Afghanistan wasn't quite enough to slake it. I think it is slaked now, however. And um, even Daryl Worley, is, um, his latest song is now talking about broken veterans coming back from the war and um, how, how they... Um, how, how they're... Um, 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 they just came back from a war where they're we're laying down our lives for people that don't care about us, and um, and even the you know the Dixie Chicks now have recovered from their 
their uh, being ostracized by the country music community so that to the point which they won five Grammy Awards last year. You know, they had said they were they were ashamed in 2003 that they, that Bush was from Texas and they were banned on big major country radio stations and there were demonstrations in which their CDs were smashed. Um, so I think that I think that that has been um, sated. In fact, um, you know, after we toppled Saddam and we killed him, we hung him. Um, that uh, people felt, you know, what are we doing in Iraq now? You know, we mission accomplished, as Bush said in May 2003. You know, we got rid of, we got rid of these bad guys, and um, um, in fact, the, the correlation between death penalty support and support for for uh, the war evaporated when you, uh, I mean, people still say that the war was worth fighting. Death penalty supporters are still more likely to say the war was worth fighting, but they're no more likely to say that we should persist and stay in Iraq than our death penalty opponents. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right, that's true. It's a good point. It's an obvious question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there was a popular, there was a song by Hank Williams Jr. Um, that came out at the time. There was a spate of revenge songs but that said, uh, "Yeah, true." only been asked what a hundred thousand times. Right. Sure. That's right. That's right. Congress not more assertively play its constitutional role 
I agree with that. Um, I agree with that. Um, uh, um, I just want to, um, you mentioned other country and western songs. There's, it enables me to get in one more, because you can see I really love them. Hank Williams Jr. Uh, uh, um, came up with the song in 2002, America Can Survive, um, which included the lines, a tooth for a tooth and an eye for an eye. That's an old slogan we're going to revive, because America can survive. Guys sure can rhyme, huh? Um, okay. But I, no, I agree. It's, it's uh, the, 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 congress the, the congressional resolution, I'm not arguing that they themselves felt anger and retribution, but that they were motivated by wanting to win re-election. And they're facing an electorate. Um, so the question is, you know, what is their perception of what the electorate wants? And is the electorate scared or is the electorate angry? And how are, they gonna, um, how are things going to develop in the next, uh, um, uh, you know, between... Uh, the resolution and the, the the elections in November, which is a very small amount of time, so I, I haven't you know I haven't verified that they that they accurately perceive this or not. I don't know. They they could have been afraid that Americans were afraid, and really they should have been afraid that Americans were angry. I don't know. Yes. There are studies that show that when you have a name and a face on a wrongdoer, that you're you, that you're more willing, you get more angry, and you assign greater punishment to that person than if it's a faceless wrongdoer. Um, Lowenstein and Small, I think. Um, so yeah, I would agree with that. And Osama bin Laden was on the cover of Time. They had pictures of him with you know red eyes and with uh, a target drawn on his face and. Uh, um, Bush, interestingly, stopped mentioning the, the words Osama bin Laden in his public speeches in early 2002, or I can't remember exactly when it was, but um, uh, you know, which point he'd already decided that, he, that Iraq was going to be the next target. And, uh, and obviously, by, um, you know, that might have helped to, to diminish uh, anger over the attacks, except that he, he then was referring to terrorists. And he'd sort of broaden this into into terrorists, and maybe that um, that then was a, uh, um, a a brush with which he could tar Saddam as being a terrorist supporter or something like that, um, and evildoers and um, axis of evil things like that. Um, but th those are faceless, so so less less potent. Um, but clearly, Saddam is somebody who has is, you know recognizable face that that you could get a lot of satisfaction from punishing somebody like. Absolutely cannot separate it. Just for the sake of the yeah. factual fraud exercise, say things have gone differently in right. Iran in 
Existing emotions, different <coughs> leaders might have chose to uh, manipulate in different ways or right. push in different directions, etc. Yeah, I, I wouldn't rule out um, you know elite communication as feeding into this process at all. And I think it matters. And I sort of you know try. I, I don't have any way to show that or measure it in this study, but lots of studies. You know, it's one of the best um, verified findings and the. Um, public opinion studies is the impact of framing on opinion. Um, that said, um, you know, the, the result that, that we see here was um, there had already, the issue had already been framed by Bush as being we were attacked by evil terrorists and that we're going to go after states uh, that harbor terrorists. He had already framed that. But he had not singled out Iraq yet. He only singled out Iraq in his January 29th, 2002 State of the Union address in which he, uh, he talked about the axis of evil. So that he was, so that, so that this, the, this data here is our effects that are sort of, that are more spontaneous and less orchestrated on the Iraq side, although may, the, the revenge side may already have been whipped up by um, Bush's demanding justice and talking about the evildoers and, and they, you know, civilization civilized nations demand that they be punished and punished severely, things like that. Um, now, whether, if Gore had been, pre I mean, if Gore had been president, whether, uh, you know, it's likely he would have said similar things just because people were so angry um, at the terrorists. He would have said similar things about the terrorists, um, that they're evil and they, we should punish them. Um, it's not likely that he would have then tried to, though we don't know, but then tried to shift the frame to Iraq being in cahoots with the terrorists and uh, just as bad as the terrorists and needing to be punished next. Um, so, um, so you know, my my guess is that this dynamic would have tapered off more dramatically than it did over the course of 2002. Um, of course, even if it stayed high, it's possible that, you know, that I'm not saying that public opinion drives decision-making in the White House anyway. It constrains it. It doesn't drive it. So, so even if it had been, been um, still potent, uh, he could have opted to do something else. Um, and again, keeping the focus on the terrorists, going after them in other ways might have been, um, have served the same, same kind of cathartic role as going after Iraq. Yes.
Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very good question, um, and I'm glad you asked it because I, I, um, I did oversimplify when I say this is Western civilization's dirty little secret because I think, uh, and, um, and, and it's an area in which I think um, would profitably gain from study because there's not much done on, there's a lot of, of comparative cross-cultural work done on values but for some reason, retributiveness or is never is never included in these world value surveys, um, I, uh, and uh, um, and and it is possible that uh, cultures and regional cultures vary in terms of retributiveness. After all, the United States is um, is one of the only uh, developed democracies that still practices the death penalty, and um, and as I said, the death penalty is. Uh, at least the justifications that people give for it is primarily that that uh, people deserve that murderers deserve to die, and um, maybe um, other uh, Europe, maybe other European democracies um, are less um, less um, uh, uh, captivated or less uh, infused with that that value. Um, uh, again. Um, I, I don't really know the answer to that. There's really no work that I can find on that, and I think it would be a great project for somebody to work on. Um, uh, and more broadly, what are the sources of these retributive values? Um, uh, religion obviously comes to mind, given that you know ultimately an eye for an eye is rooted in Old Testament, um, as well as uh, you know Habarabi code, and has you know many and uh, in, in the Quran and so on many. Um, kind of uh, religious um, reference, um, and um, um, uh, there are some studies that show that certain kinds of fundamentalist Christians, uh, evangelical Christians, at least conservative ones, because there are some that seem to be very humanitarian thinking, and others who are more uh, for eye for an eye thinking, but that they seem to be disproportionately uh, pro-death penalty, pro-corporal punishment, um, um, and that you know maybe there's something there. And America has a greater number, a greater proportion of these than do uh, European countries. Um, so, um, you know, the the New Testament does have a more kind of for, theme of forgivingness in it than the Old Testament, um, although. Um, um, as a Jew, I have to say that the New Testament has a, um, does have um, uh, the idea that you'll get yours, but in the afterlife. In fact, you know, it's, uh, you know, it may be even worse than being drawn and quartered or having your eye poked out to roast in hell for eternity. Um, and, um, but, you know, but there is this big speech that Jesus gives in the Sermon of the Mount where he says, you know, turn the other cheek. Uh, and... Uh, um, and, uh, and that may, um, you know, maybe certain um, Christian, um, um, Christian, um, what do they call them? Uh, not sex, but uh, uh, varieties of Christianity. Denominations. denominations, that's the word I was looking for. Uh, Christian denominations um, um, focus more on Old Testament lessons than on that. Um, but I think that's an interesting question. Yeah. Oh, somebody who hasn't asked a question? Uh, 
can, why don't you, can these two have had their hands up, ask their questions to, sort of together, and then, okay, go ahead. And then I'll promise to, to give a short if, uh, answer, if uh, an answer at all. Did you still have a question? Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, these, these questions actually fit very well together. And, um, you know, uh, you're basically uh, both asking, 
you know, why don't we have more rationality in our political decision-making process and in our institutions? And, um, you know, um, um, uh, I think that that the um, uh, that that what I'd like to the, you know the message or one message I'd like to leave you with is that emotions do that we, we should pay more attention to emotions than than political scientists normally do, and that they do matter a lot. And American politics are starting to really discover just how much they matter in terms of candidate preferences and things like that, rather than positions on issues. And uh, you know the affinity for candidates and their personality and how you feel about a candidate and so on, um, and um, uh, and that uh, the idea of you know uh, I don't know if you recall uh, a famous realist um, George Kennan um, in a uh, history he wrote of American foreign policy describes democracies as sort of caricatures democracies as as uh, dinosaurs with. Uh, pin-sized brains that are slow to be aroused, but once they realize that somebody is bothering them, they thrash around, destroying their environment and their own their own sanctuaries. And this image has been scoffed at in recent decades by the kind of um, uh, rational public, rational you know public model. No, public is not irrational. They aren't overly emotional. They don't vacillate in their opinions. They do care about pragmatic considerations. Um, um, and uh, and I, you know, I, I don't want to overthrow that entirely, but I do think that there is a nugget of truth in what Kennan was uh, saying.